It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Hello, Steve. Hope all's well with you. We have the man of the hour here, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. On the show today, we'll welcome back our friend, investigative economist James Henry. Mr. Henry will join us to make some sense of the Silicon Valley bank failure, the Credit Suisse crisis, and the latest news from the Federal Reserve. That's the first half of the show. Then, we've seen no shortage of scandal and controversy on college campuses, parents buying admission for their children, colleges exploiting NCAA athletes for financial gain and free labor, administrations mishandling sexual assault, appalling pay and working conditions for adjuncts, grad students, and teaching assistants, universities closing libraries while investing billions with private equity firms. Our second guest will be Allison dundees Rentelm. Professor of Political Science and Anthropology at the University of Southern California and co-editor of the book, The Ethical University, Transforming Higher Education. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, we've heard a lot about Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and all the banking crisis. Let's find out what's really going on. David? James Henry is a leading economist, attorney, consultant, and investigative journalist who has written and spoken widely on the problems of tax justice and development finance. He is a lecturer and global justice fellow at Yale University. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, James Henry. Good to be with you. Welcome back, Jim. Well, people everywhere have been watching this bank crisis. Some regulators don't like to call it a bank crisis, but A sizable bank in Silicon Valley called the Silicon Valley Bank went belly up. Signature Bank, a little while later in New York, went up. And all the big banks are benefiting from the withdrawals from these banks, going to banks that are deemed to be too big to fail. Senator Elizabeth Warren is attributing this collapse to the deregulation bill that passed under Trump 2018 with both Republican Democratic support to overcome any filibuster threat that reduced the level of regulation of banks from $50 billion in assets up to $250 billion in assets. And everybody's wondering what Secretary Treasury Yellen's going to do. She calls the banking system remaining sound and testimony before Congress. What do you think of all this? Well, it's a very timely discussion. Chairman Powell of the Federal Reserve is going to announce 2 o'clock whether or how much he's going to raise interest rates for the next time uh, the debate is on. And there's some concern that, you know, because of all these banking problems, the Fed will not raise rates a half a point. They might not raise them at all. We'll see. But clearly that's being influenced by this discussion. I think since the Silicon Valley Bank failed, that was, you know, the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. And then Signature followed that shortly after, you know, talking <laughs> real time compression here. We have had increasing uh, bank runs at so-called regional banks, which are smaller banks around the country. And people are beginning to shift a lot of their uninsured deposits, uh, especially into the larger banks, which they perceive, you know, like J.P. Morgan and Bank of America and so forth are as less risky. And we've also had the big failure in Credit Suisse. I mean, not a bank failure, but they they merged Credit Suisse, the second largest Swiss bank, into UBS, the largest Swiss bank. 
you know, after it lost all support from its shareholders and from in- investors and was basically on the brink of collapse. So, you know, that's a fairly significant story that I've been watching for a long time. You and I warned the Department of Labor that uh, Credit Suisse was a serial corporate criminal and really didn't deserve to be advising U.S. public pension funds. That was back in 2015. They ignored us <laughs> and gave them a, a waiver, allowing them to continue that status as a pension fund manager until just this year when they finally caught up and kicked them out of the program. But there are other big banks that are equally engaged in that kind of serial criminal activity, and some of them are exposed here as well. So the last thing I'd say is that we've just found out that the recent estimates that had been made about how underwater U.S. bank portfolios are in their loan portfolios, their bond portfolios, and exposed to interest rate increases of the kind that Powell is considering. You know, that number is really hundreds of U.S. banks that are in even worse shape than Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley Bank had about 98% of its deposits uninsured, and many of them from so-called whale companies, the whale depositors, with billions of dollars of uninsured deposits. Meaning they were over the $250,000 Oh, yeah. FDIC I mean, uh, company called, yeah, absolutely. There are dozens of companies with tens of millions of dollars of uninsured deposits. You know, Circle was a, is a company that provides stable coins. It's a technology company. They had $3.3 billion of uninsured deposits. Let me interject yeah. here. Yeah. Some of our listeners are saying, why are these big companies so stupid as to put in uninsured deposits way, way above the $250,000 guarantee by the FDIC. Companies like Vanguard and Fidelity, they distribute their money market funds all over the country to banks, keeping it under 250000 Now, obviously, sure. to anyone in business, putting in a billion dollars in one bank is a huge risk. Why did they take that risk? What did they get in return? Well, this was a club. This was the place that every VC in Silicon Valley banked. If you were a young tech company, you just got $2 million in deposits. You were subject to the rules about drawing that down, you know, conditions on when you could pay it out to your employees. And the bank, Silicon Valley, came to be the place to be for all of these venture capital companies were really calling the shots. And so, you know, there was a lot of quid pro quos going on. I mean, we've already seen Governor Newsom got three of his Napa Valley wineries funded by Silicon Valley Bank. You know, there's stories about low interest loans to the founders in exchange for deposits, so-called back-to-back loans. You know, to get to the bottom of all that, you actually have to have a decent investigation. This is a federally insured bank. This was covered by the FDIC. In fact, the Federal Reserve had its inspectors in there in the last, you know, since 2021, talking to them about, you know, doing basic things like hedging and having a risk manager. They didn't have a risk manager all last year. And they had all this deposit concentration. But, you know, this is the other basic theme about this. The Federal Reserve chairman and policy people around him and quite a few, you know, people on the libertarian right, you know, have been opposed to stricter bank regulation. And since 2017, Silicon Valley Bank and other banks have been lobbying 
to eliminate the stress tests for banks with deposits less than 250 billion. So, you know, this is a real failure of regulation at the federal level. I mean, anyone could have expected, I think, that interest rates would be rising after a period of 12 years with negative or zero real interest rates. Financial community is cleaned up. One of the reasons we have all these insured nearly $8 trillion of uninsured deposits in the U.S. banking system, uh, especially since 2019, is because of all this quantitative easing that was going on on the part of the Federal Reserve. It's pretty simple to understand. They decided during the pandemic they would basically inject a lot of liquidity in the market, and they started buying securities from mutual funds. And the deposits that were received there bloated up the amount of deposits at the banks. And then a lot of banks like Silicon Valley got into the business of grabbing these deposits from their depositors in exchange for loans and then investing them in U.S. Treasury bonds. And now a lot of those bonds are not so-called marked to market. They are undervalued on the books. There's at least $610 billion of those book assets that have not been marked to market on the U.S. banks' books these days. You think many of our listeners understand what you're saying? No. You think anybody, any majority of the American people begin to understand the machinations of the Federal Reserve and the banking system? Isn't that the most basic problem? Because they don't understand it. It it is absolutely. Therefore, they don't know what to demand. By the way, Silicon Valley Bank is a state-chartered bank, even though it's under FDIC. It's That's a state right. chartered bank. It's not right. a federally chartered. If you correct That's yourself right. on that, let me just try to clarify because we're going to be losing the audience on this because it's so you know mark to market and all that. Let's assume Jim Henry. You were formerly chief economist for McKinsey, mm-hmm. and now you're a major reformer and investigator of the international banking system. You've uncovered all kinds of international banking crimes involving big law firms. Panama, elsewhere. Let's say you were going to rewrite the whole regulatory banking system in this country. What would you do? Let's be very clear about what would you do from the beginning? You were the decider. Well, I think that's, uh, thanks for that question. Uh, I would say, you know, the first thing we learn from the history of banking crises in the United States is that banks are really the Achilles heel of capitalism. I mean, this keeps happening, you know, and we got used to a period when banking crises we thought had been taken care of, uh, that we could just assume that someone in the Fed or in the U.S. Treasury or the regulators at the global level would understand all this stuff and they would uh, reform the system raise the capital requirements for banks and a bunch of other things that we try to do since 2008. The fact is that this is a political problem. Banking industry has more power per square inch in Washington and in state capitals and in every major capital city in the world than almost any other industry, maybe not so much as defense. I mean, that might be the comparable one, but they have you know, scores of of lawyers and lobbyists that work on these regulations. And basically, since the late 80s, they've been on a path to get deregulation has been their siren song. And they got people in both parties to go along with a massive amount of deregulation of the banking system. So the result has been we've had this huge increase in the concentration of the banking markets. 
But I would say that the first and most fundamental thing that comes to mind here in terms of this is you can't separate issues like Citizens United and the influence that corporate and financial power have in Washington from the technical solutions that you come up for this system, because the solutions again and again have favored the banking industry. Okay, that's why I asked you to be the decider. Right. Never mind all the influence, which is quite impressive, of the banks over Congress. In fact, yeah. one senator once blurted out, the banks own this place. What would you do? What kind of regulatory system would you put forward? Well, I think, first of all, you need much more proactive examination and have much more powerful proactive regulators of the banking system so that you can prevent this. In the case of Silicon Valley and Signature, you know, it was pretty easy for an examiner to tell that they had all these concentrated uninsured deposits and that they weren't using hedging mechanisms. You know, so I think for a bank to actually be in business, it has a responsibility to be, you know, a public citizen, to open its books and to make regulators a part of the team. One of the strong lessons from this episode is that you need much tougher bank regulators. We have a balkanized kind of alphabet soup of regulators at the federal level. There is no one regulator. There's a bunch of different ones. And then the states also get involved. You know, that is one problem that I think is a, quite a serious problem. A second problem is this question of what do you do when the banks fail? Do you throw more money at them? Do you bail them out? And my solution there is no, you actually put some people in jail and you go in and investigate and you may well decide to nationalize some of these banks or to publicize them rather than to, as we did in 2008, 2009, to throw tens of billions, more than actually more than $500 billion of subsidies and more than $2 trillion of, of loans at the banking system. So, you know, those are two things. Stop bailouts, more direct intervention, and upfront, you need more prevention. You know, I don't think we're in favor of, you know, trying to have government ownership of the entire banking sector. That's not what we're calling for here. But undoubtedly, we need more public action. Let's talk about the rule of law here. There was a head of the Kansas City Federal Reserve Regional Board, Honig, his name was, years ago. He was asked, is there any legal limit to what the Federal Reserve could do in terms of buying securities in order to throw more dollars into juicing the stock market and pleasing the banks? And he said, no, there is no limit to the Federal Reserve. More recently, Secretary of Treasury Janet Yellen, implied that the federal government may guarantee all deposits in the banking system if it's necessary. They have already guaranteed all the deposits of the Silicon Valley mega millionaires in Silicon Valley Bank and the depositors in Signature Bank above the legal limit of 250000 per account. Where does she get that authority? Where does she get the authority that she can announce without getting a bill through Congress that the federal government, and the taxpayer is the ultimate guarantor here, can, in effect, guarantee the deposits, not just of the, the little folk, up to 250000 but all the rich people? For that, I asked Bruce Fine, our resident legal scholar, to comment. And Steve Scrovan is going to read his comment. Bruce said, the Fed, Treasury Department, and FDIC had no authority to ensure de jure or de facto deposits 
at Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank exceeding a statutory ceiling of $250,000. Indeed, the federal agencies cited no legal authority in requesting 11 major banks to deposit $30 billion in Republic Bank. Only Congress can raise the $250,000 ceiling and bills have been introduced accordingly. But the federal bank regulators are acting outside the law and suggesting it will guarantee all deposits, no matter the amount, to quell the fears of depositors and a serial run on banks, even if Congress does nothing. That was Bruce Fine, our resident constitutional scholar. Now, let me take you, Jim, back to Henry Paulson, Secretary of the Treasury under George W. Bush. And when the banking system was collapsing on the workers and the economy in 2008 and had to be bailed out, Secretary Paulson and the chairman of the Federal Reserve and a couple other guys in the federal government called down the executives of Citigroup to a weekend meeting, private weekend meeting, and they decided then and there to provide hundreds of billions of dollars of loan guarantees and direct subsidies to bail out a collapsing, gigantic Citigroup bank, which was mismanaged in very serious ways and taking on reckless speculations. Okay, now he was asked by the Washington Post about what he did. And here it is. Secretary of Treasury Henry Paulson said, we didn't have any authorities to do what we did, namely the bailout, but, quote, somebody had to do it, end quote. Okay, you're a graduate of the Harvard Law School. Where are the lawyers here? In Congress, outside of Congress, where are the bar associations? Who speaks up for a banking industry that is literally above the law and can be saved again and again, therefore encouraging more risky behavior in order to get more bonuses for more profits for the top dogs of these giant banks that everybody now understands are too big to fail, meaning they're too big to fail, therefore the government's going to bail them out. As conservative syndicated columnist George Will once wrote, quote, if they're too big to fail, they're too big to exist, period, quote, conservative commentator. So what's your view of all this? Well, I think Carl Kazin at Princeton once said that computers will never replace bankers or businessmen because they don't know what they're doing. And in this case, you know, a lot of these situations that we get into are the result of prolonged inattention to these issues by, you know, not only the congressmen and even presidents, but also uh, ordinary Americans who assume that someone else is watching. And then the banking industry goes in and writes the laws and has its way with regulation and dominates a lot of the appointments. So I don't apologize for the Harvard Law School folks who were, you know, suddenly called out to stop all this on sort of legal grounds. When we get into these situations where right now we have 2,315 banks in this country, nearly half of the banks, with a lot of uninsured deposits and more than $11 trillion of assets that are in jeopardy because of what's going on. A lot of those guys have not marked their books to market because the feds let them get away with it. And it's as simple as that. Now, in that situation, how are we going to deal with the crisis? We shouldn't have faced this crisis to begin with. We f should have anticipated it. And so, you know, it's, I think it's easy to say in this situation, well, we have no authority to do this. We didn't have any authority to be asleep 
either. <laughs> we, 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 were, we decided well, the, 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 not I to pay it, attention I to this, it, and it came to be, I think, a very, very, in, a, in an unsolved problem in our political system, which is how do you get... I, I, think, I, I think you're, you're hitting the, the nail on the head. The banking industry has the economy in the United States of America by the throat. They're holding it hostage. They're basically saying to Washington and the media, look, regardless of how we got into this mess, Greed, mismanagement, speculation, blaming others, scapegoating. The reality is you got to bail us out because in 2008, when the banking industry collapsed, even after the bailout, there were 8 million jobs lost. The country was thrown into a recession and the taxpayer had to foot the bill in Washington, D.C. No executives of any of the banks were prosecuted, convicted or sent to jail period, unlike the savings and loan scandal a decade earlier when 800 of these officials were prosecuted and sent to jail. Now, there's an argument to be made that when an industry has an economy held hostage, that it forfeits its right to private enterprise, that that's the rationale for nationalizing the banking system, period. Well, that's right. I mean, your answer? Well, I think, you know, Maybe General Pinochet in Chile is, is the model here. In 1983, the Chilean banks had gone heavily into lending abroad, and then the peso in Chile collapsed. And Pinochet was faced with either bailing out all the Chilean banks, which owned about 90% of the private sector, or nationalizing them. He decided to nationalize the banks. And I think what we, you know, this is what I said we should have done in 2009. In March of 2009, you could have bought the entire shareholder positions of the top four banks in the country for about $150 billion. You could have taken them over. What an incredible bargain. And you could have, well, you could have bought them. At that stage, you could have fired all the managers. You could have restructured the banking industry and done what Pinochet did, which is to privatize the, and then the Chilean government made out like crazy. Now, I'm not proposing that kind of dictatorship situation, but it's certainly an alternative to tossing hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars into the pockets of the same executives who got us into this mess and just standing back. Just to show you, just listeners, by comparison, what would the price be today if the U.S. government wanted to buy out the top four banks? Roughly. Well, the capital, you know, I just ran the numbers. The the market cap of, let's say, J.P. Morgan is about 300 and more than $390 billion today. It's, you know, it's probably falling <laughs> as we speak, but, you know, the top 10 would be somewhere on the order of three to four trillion. And, you know, a decade ago, if they had nationalized these institutions and sold them back, they could have done that for a hundred billion, $200 billion, bought a significant share of the of the uh, well, ownership you, of the bank, and they could have sold them back to the private sector. We're not interested in having the government run the banking system. But when you get into a crisis, do you toss hundreds and billions of dollars into the same pockets of the people who have just mismanaged the, the whole situation? Or do you fire them and get another group to come in and restructure the banks and put some of those people who ran them into the ground in jail? You know, you're absolutely right. There's more than I added up recently the total number of financial crimes committed by the top 20 banks in the United States between 2000 and 2023. And this is everything from tax dodging to 
you know, money laundering and mortgage fraud, 14 different categories. It's more than 1,300 crimes by the top 20 banks. Nobody went to jail during this period. None of these institutions lost their licenses. Credit Suisse, you know, didn't lose its license. And that was, you know, probably one of the worst offenders. But JP Morgan, Bank of America, they lead the country in financial crime. And Bank of America has paid $84 billion of fines in the last two decades. JP Morgan has paid more than $40 billion of fines. Not to mention Wells Fargo, a recidivist Wells Fargo, criminal bank. Yeah, absolutely. Wells Fargo, Citibank, you know, the, just look at the top 10. There's a great site called violationstracker.com run by Good Jobs Now, which tracks all of this information about the banks. But the point is that all of these penalties that we imposed on them for this chicanery were in the form of fines. And they came very late, long after the profits had been realized. Nobody went to jail. Nobody lost their licenses. And the fines are, in many cases, just passed on to customers. You know, Credit Suisse, the $2.6 billion fine that was imposed in 2014 when they were caught helping Americans evade taxes, they got a tax deduction for their $2.6 billion fine. So these fines don't have any impact on the financial institutions. In fact, it's part of the business model. Just to summarize your point, you're saying it might be better for when this cyclical bank crisis occurs, it occurs every few years, it seems, 2008 and then now, it's better for the government to take them over, fire the board of directors and the officers, restructure them, and then sell them for a profit because they can take them over and buy the stock asset valuation for a very low price, restructure them, and then sell them to reputable bankers and make a profit. That was done with the GM bankruptcy. That was done done with NatWest in the the UK. That's what they did with NatWest. They nationalized the bank, took it over and sold it for a profit. But, you know, you won't hear anyone proposing that, you know, in the the New York Times. (laughs) It's, It's taboo. Jim, I have to correct both of us here. Just in the last few days, a high executive of Wells Fargo has had to pay a fine and may go to prison for 16 months. Why? Because he was involved in the Wells Fargo fabrication of millions of bank accounts for depositors without their okay, credit card accounts, auto insurance loans, and the staff of Wells Fargo were put under great pressure. They were also given quotas. And up until just now, nobody was prosecuted and went to jail. So we're, well, that's we're, a senior vice president, and she is going to jail. So that's the exception that proves the rule. It was so exceptional that it got a front page story. But right. uh, yeah, in general, all of these other kinds of crimes, and many of the ones we're talking about, are actually organized crimes. You you can't set up a massive department to do mortgage fraud if you don't have you know tens of people, <laughs> dozens of people involved in it. No, I think the fundamental point that we have to get back to is to prevent this from happening. You need tough regulation up front, which is not bemused by the libertarian ideology that pretends that we don't need bank regulation. And after the fact, when you have this these crises, you have to actually penalize some of these banks by taking them over, restructuring them, and then cleaning them up. And that's what hasn't been done. So... That's my twofold solution to your question. Jim, before we conclude, how can people reach you? Tell us briefly about the work you do. 
Yeah, I'm reachable in a number of different ways. One is I'm on Twitter at Submerging Markets, and I, you know, I have a number of um, DC reports. I'm a senior editor there. Just send me an email. <laughs> that would be great. It's jhenry at sagharbor.com. That's jhenry at sagharbor.com. Thank you That's very fine. much, Jim. As usual, keep up the good work. Pleasure to be with you. We've been speaking with James Henry. We will link to his work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Next up, we're going to apply to the Ethical University. No guarantee we'll get in. And I think David was a legacy. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, March 24, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. New research shows that the decline in local newspapers has led to a subsequent rise in organizational wrongdoing within the community, particularly when there is a lack of community connectedness. The findings are contained in the paper, The Crisis in Local Newspapers and Organizational Wrongdoing, which was published in Organizational Science. Because local newspapers, through their general watchdog function, play an instrumental role in balancing economic and non-economic values, we investigated whether the significant decline in local newspapers in the United States weakened the enforcement mechanism that would normally curb organizational wrongdoing, said one of the authors, Canadian business professor Mike Valenti. Our results, in fact, show the decline in local newspapers increases organizational wrongdoing, but this relationship is moderated by community social connectedness. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman, Ralph, and Hannah. What's going on with the commercialization of universities? David? Allison Dundee's Rentown is a professor of political science and anthropology at the University of Southern California, where she teaches law and public policy with an emphasis on international law and human rights. She is co-editor with Wanda Tees of The Ethical University, Transforming Higher Education. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Allison Dundee's Rentown. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Welcome indeed, Allison. Listeners should know that Allison, many years ago, spent a summer at our center and has gone on to become an enormously prolific writer, networker, and academic event producer. I've gone through this book, The Ethical University, Allison, subtitled Transforming Higher Education. And although there are a lot of alarms in this book documented, from my experience, it's still an understatement as to the level of corporatization and corporate takeover of university missions, sometimes university departments with joint ventures, and the university redefinition increasingly to be vocational education, downgrading the liberal arts, the social scientists, and the humanities. And you point this out in your introduction, which has a which has a very important paragraph I want to read from the introduction. Quote, another cause for concern has been the tendency of universities to invite more individuals from the business world to serve on boards of trustees rather than those with substantial experience in university life. This propensity for university boards to be dominated by those from the corporate world has generated substantial criticism. Despite their expertise in corporate affairs, they often lack sufficient familiarity with the intellectual life of the university. One manifestation of the influence of the business world is the increase in the number of deans, 
quote, administrative bloat, quote. Deans also speak in the jargon of the business world, strategic plans, business models, teams, and so on. Grant proposals are expected to be formulated as business plans, end quote. Now, what I'd like to have you discuss is the extent to which the mission of a university, which is to produce enlightened graduates, people who are going to be engaged in civic activity, as well as to produce skills that they can use in the marketplace or for government service. You come from USC, University of Southern California, known mostly out east for its football team, and you've witnessed this change over the years that you've been there as a professor of law, professor of political science. And it's a private university, I understand. Tell us a little bit about USC as a paradigm shift here. Well, I've certainly admired your leadership on so many issues to promote democracy. And and your book, Civics for Democracy, is one that we need to reissue and, and use in our classes because universities have shifted towards this emphasis on vocational training and to the detriment of, you know, critical thinking and reasoning, emphasizing the importance of commitment to democratic institutions and so on. So there's been a shift towards more practical skills and having courses that teach students how to get jobs and in that direction. But I do want to beg to differ on how USC is perceived now. It may have been back in the day that we were known for football, but I do think that there's been a shift towards emphasizing interdisciplinary education. And we had a provost, Lloyd Armstrong, who really played an important role in shifting emphasis towards academic life. And that's why it's been quite sad for me to observe the changes in the recent decade, because we've had kind of a backsliding in that regard. You know, we really should be thinking about how to make universities a place for learning and production of knowledge and making the world a better place. And the book is really an attempt to argue for reimagining universities so that we return to the mission of universities, which is not to promote future, you know, corporate leaders, but, you know, some of them may do that, but to produce people who will contribute in many different ways in society. And my experience at USC has been mostly positive. You know, I've been supported as someone who's very interdisciplinary. My background is in history and literature, jurisprudence and social policy, human rights. And I was supported all through promotion to tenure and full professor. And and I've seen many of my colleagues supported in their interdisciplinary work. So I, I do have to praise USC for its serious commitment to interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary thinking. But the problem has been that there's become an obsession with fundraising at USC so that people didn't pay attention to some of the the problems that we experienced. For example, I'm sure you read about the problems with our student health service, just as one example, that for decades, students were complaining about being molested by a doctor, Dr. Tyndall, and the university knew about and didn't do anything. So it's been heartbreaking to see at the, at, you know, that at the same time the university paid more attention to interdisciplinary programs, that the obsession with fundraising really undermined efforts to pay attention to the well-being of students. And so that's why we had a change in our president, that the 400 faculty met one day and called for the president to leave. And we had hoped that there would be a change in the leadership, but we still have the same board of trustees mostly. And as you pointed out, the board of trustees control universities and the board of trustees 
are mostly people from the business world who don't have experience with academia. And they're very smart people. They're very successful. And they're probably well-intentioned for the most part. But they don't meet with faculty. We don't have faculty representation. So as you rightly pointed out, we have one of the most serious problems with USC and many universities is the lack of shared governance. One of your recommendations was to have half of the board of trustees be faculty and also have some student representation. Do you know any university or college that actually approximates that representational ethic? I can't think of an example. There are some universities where faculty governance is better. I think the University of Pennsylvania had a really strong academic senate, but there there are certainly some where there are some faculty on the board where, you know, we have not had that. So, you know, I think I would rather have a board that's mostly comprised of faculty, students, and staff, and maybe have two representatives from the business world so that it's really the decision-making about the future of universities is governed by people who are involved in the actual work of the university. And obviously, we need funding you know, to have the university continue. But if we had state funding of universities and we didn't have tuition, we wouldn't, I mean, we basically need to just restructure the universities in fundamental ways so that we could avoid this, this kind of problem or quagmire of having corporate control of universities, which is basically what we have. Not only that, but these large public universities, as you know so well, are very top down And the people who have the greatest stake, the faculty, the students, and the alumni, don't have much governance say. Some alumni have say on sports, of course, big-time sports. But it's really quite remarkable. An institution that's supposed to be devoted to democratic deliberation, intellectual life, justice, opportunity, broadly defined, that the decisions are made by the administrators and the board of trustees, largely in secret. I mean, that, that's what's at stake in removing the anthropology library at the University of California, Berkeley, your alma mater, yes. uh, one of the great anthropological libraries in the world. The decision was made by the administrators to save $400,000 when they're paying the coach, the football coach, millions of dollars. And when the chancellor is making twice as much as the highest paid governor in the United States, the governor of California. So you point this out. Readers should know this book, The Ethical University, Transforming Higher Education, is a series of chapters contributed by different people who know the subject that they're writing about. And in that way, there's a lot of ground covered. And I want to focus, you had a course for a while where you taught civic skills, and you were kind enough to use our book, Civics for Democracy. At the time, we thought, wow, if that course is taught at USC, it may spread to other universities. We had one community college in in Ohio that had civic skill seminar, and the students loved it. And in neither case was there any discernible diffusion of this idea. I mean, it's one thing if if universities ignore an idea, but you showed it was a success. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? Well, we developed a course in applied politics that was basically an attempt to do what you and I had discussed, and you were brilliant when you came and spoke at the university. The, The room was packed. It was, you know, standing room only. Luckily, the fire marshal didn't come. And so now there are multiple sections of that course being taught by different people in politics, and the students love these courses, but I'm not sure if the university appreciates the student demand for 
these kinds of courses in civic education. One version of it was taught by somebody, Dr. Michelle Angela Martinez, who taught a course on organizing, and she had worked with the National Lawyers Guild, and we have people who are former, you know, legislators and so on. So the course is very well established in the department, and every semester there are usually two or three versions of it, but I think it needs to be incorporated in high schools because it's sort of shocking to get students at the college level who don't know about the three branches of government. I even get students in law school who don't know how judges are selected. I really think that the high school need to have some kind of civics class, that the model needs to be part of what's required to graduate from high school. There should be an exit exam, I think, from high schools. I know you've worked with Congressman Jamie Raskin on his democracy camp, Maybe all students should take that, which is offered around the country, along with your book, and then have further training in high schools. I I think that we need something that's really nationwide. It can't just be, we can't wait for diffusion. It's too, our democracy is in too much jeopardy to wait to have the USC's course spread around. I was also going to mention that a classmate of mine, Leslie Kornfeld, has an imaginative idea. She has set up a national equity lab that has professors like me. I hope that USC is going to join this consortium of 13 universities where we teach courses online that go to students in areas where they don't have access to, you know, prep schools and so on. And then they're mentored so they can get into really good colleges. So that's also geared more towards high school students. So I think one of the reasons that some of us came together to do this book was not just that we were distraught by the failure of the leadership at our universities and the failure to protect students and libraries and our own well-being, was that we thought that the discussion of the role of universities has been pretty much controlled by people in schools of education. And while they do good work, all of us have a stake in the future of universities in the 21st century. And so the book has people from many different disciplines writing about topics such as, you know, the treatment of athletes, whether older faculty have a duty to retire, discrimination against international students. So there's a wide range of topics about problems basically at universities where we try to identify solutions to these problems and bring in people from all different fields to try to get universities back on track, you know, thinking about their mission. Well, well, you make a good point. You should start in high school, even middle school. Formal education in our country is averse to studying about abuses of power, especially corporate power. And I've got to give you an example from my time at Princeton a long time ago. This has been going on for a long time. There was a course in the Department of Political Science by Professor H.H. Wilson, and he taught a course called Power in America, which, you know, is pretty well within the rubric of political science, right? (laughs) Power in America. He was ostracized by the department. It took him the longest time, even though he was well published, to move from associate professor to full professor, because instead of just teaching about Hegel or John Locke or others, he was teaching about corporate power. He would have a powerful corporate lawyer come in. He would show that companies sold flammable fabrics, and he actually had a demonstration of the weak regulation over flammable fabrics. And he never was recognized for that. And he wasn't an outlier. That's been the story for decades. And the point you make in this book, internal conduct of a university and the external pressures and servitudes of the university to corporate power are interconnected. Tell us about the millions of adjunct teachers that teach in some schools the bulk of the courses and what they're paid. 
Well, so you raised so many important issues that it's challenging to respond effectively to all of these because there's so many issues here. But one of the issues is that people who do imaginative work that threatens institutions are maybe punished. You know, they may not be denied tenure, but there may be delays in their promotion and so forth. So, you know, the issue of political bias at universities is one of great concern. And in recent years now, you know, with the Internet, if faculty, even tenured faculty, say something, make a mistake, that they can be attacked and, and maybe put on leave and so on. So academic freedom is under attack now as well. And that's related to the point that you're making about the increase in the number of adjuncts who are paid a few thousand dollars or several thousand dollars a course. They can barely make ends meet. They don't have the kind of health benefits and other protections that universities offer. So the fact that the percent of a faculty who are tenured or tenure track has been reduced greatly and where universities are instead hiring adjuncts, first of all, it's a cost savings mechanism, but it also means that they have greater control over faculty because they're basically can be dismissed at will. So that really does threaten the ability for people to deal with controversial topics, to challenge institutions and so forth. So those two issues are very much related. The um, yeah, With adjunct teachers numbering in the millions, by the way, listeners, we can say that there's a new form of sweatshop that's been developing at universities around the country in recent decades. And there have been some efforts among these adjunct teachers to form a union, but it doesn't seem to have succeeded. And the media hasn't paid enough attention to it. I heard one figure, Allison, where there are as many as 7 million of them, many of them at community colleges, not only four-year colleges. Do you know anything about the union movement in this area? I don't know the number of unions that have been formed, but I know there are movements not only for the adjuncts, but also for graduate students who are paid a pittance. So that that's another form of sweatshop. The graduate students can barely survive on what they're given to complete their PhDs. But it, but it, it even goes further than that. Another manifestation of this problem of imbalance and power is the fact that within a department, we now have people on the tenure track, professors of teaching and professors of the practice. And so there is a sort of, it creates even more sibling rivalry within departments. And so this divides the faculty when they need to work together against the administration, which continues to, you know, pause retirement benefits and do all these different things. So all of these strategies that have been employed at the suggestion of, you know, consultants from McKinsey and other, other firms, this basically undermines efforts to bring people together, whether in unions or in other kind of collectives to challenge the abuse of power at universities. So it's made universities less hospitable because people, it pits faculty against each other. The book is The Ethical University, Transforming Higher Education. We've been talking with Professor Allison Dundee's Rentel. I think this book is so important if you can get students to read again. I thought the chapter by Steve Sanders on secrecy and the university, I mean, it's worse than I thought. <laughs> there are non-disclosure agreements, non-disclosure agreements in universities. No, what's that, that about? Well, that, I think that's I think it's outrageous. I mean, if you ask me what solutions I have, one of them is that there should not be these non-disclosure agreements, and there shouldn't be these secret severance packages that they pay to people like Dr. Tyndall. They're they basically rewarding people for wrongdoing. We, they should that shouldn't be allowed. I think that the fact that decisions are made about leadership in secrecy is very disturbing. I completely agree with you. It is much worse than, than we realized. And universities are being guided by 
these search firms by McKinsey Consultants. And we thought the reason they were hiring all these deans was that they wanted to have people to develop strategic plans. But then the deans turn around and hire consultants. So the whole thing is just complete, you know, siphoning off of funding that should be going to libraries, to student scholarships and so forth. It is pretty terrible. I don't think these kinds of searches should be conducted in secrecy. That chapter, which is the last chapter, is horrifying. And the fact that he was subject to abuse and and threats himself is is pretty scary. He has a section about paying an ex-president in secret at the University of Indiana. It's pretty startling. It's like the way the corporations operate. They even have retention bonuses to this ex-president. Yeah, totally. There's, but they do that with they do that with faculty who are favored. There's a lot of cronyism behind the scenes where people pretend they have offers and then they get anticipatory retention funding. And so there's a lot of abuse that goes on. And I mean, if we're talking about issues of misuse of money, there are issues of compression of salaries and gender pay equity. There are so many problems at universities, but we can't get them rectified because the administration doesn't listen to us. We don't have any power. People have really abandoned academic Senate because it has no power. And so I would favor a model of a university where we didn't have presidents because they're basically for fundraising. The top officials should be co-leaders. It should be the provost, who's the chief academic officer, who should be chosen largely by the faculty in conjunction with the president of the academic senate. And if the academic senate were a co-leader with the provost, everybody would want to join the academic senate because we would believe that we would have some influence. Most people, tenure faculty, don't join it. They think it's a waste of time. And so we don't have any real shared governance. So we have a system that's designed to fail, that's designed not to make changes. And I guess part of what was so disappointing after our president was removed was we were told they were going to restructure the USC leadership. We were told we were going to be given reports about what had happened, which we were never given. We were told that the trustees were going to have listening sessions. So we would go and speak before them, but then they wouldn't respond to us. And so there was there was no exchange. So we told people, well, we had listening sessions. They listened, but they didn't hear us. And so we really have to fundamentally change the way universities are structured so that faculty and students, that really the, the stakeholders, the people for whom universities exist, are really at the center of decision making. And one thing that we haven't talked about is the lack of any kind of real accountability. All the grievance mechanisms at universities where we do identify problems They're all institutions, they're all mechanisms or units within the university where the university is paying their salaries. So these people have a vested interest in protecting the university. They're basically trying to avoid negative publicity, litigation, and so forth. So if we really wanted to fix universities and have public discussion of problems, we would have something like an inspector general or some kind of commission on higher education where people could have complaints reviewed because having it done by a university and by people who whose careers depend on pleasing the university makes no sense whatsoever. That was one of your recommendations at the end, to have some sort of independent commission, which with the emphasis on independent. There's so many other things we're not going to have time to discuss, like tuition compared to Western Europe, except for England in recent years. They don't pay much tuition at all for higher education in France, Germany, Italy, Australia, New Zealand. But in our country, we introduce young Americans who go to college and university 
to years of debt, years of debt servitude. There are some people paying off student loans who are in their 60s and 70s now as these loans get rolled over and rolled over with high interest rates. And we didn't discuss the commercialization of overall of the university as we might someday in another program. But the commercialization of big-time sports is a true scandal, and it keeps becoming worse as a scandal as the years go by. And one of my concerns, I'd like your comment on this, the Bayh-Dole legislation, which was signed in the last days of the Carter administration, turned out it allowed billions and billions of dollars of government research and development that go to the universities, and the researchers at the university work on these grants and allows the transfer for very inexpensive royalties to corporations. So what was funded by the taxpayer goes to tax-supported universities and ends up in the hands of profit-seeking private big corporations. I begged Carter not to sign it. It's one of the few times I got through on a phone call. But the argument was made that too many of these grants were not developed into commercial products, and therefore the taxpayer wasn't getting an adequate return. There was just basic research parked at universities. Do you have any views on that? Yes, I think this is so important. I think education should be free for people who don't have income. It should be a sliding scale. People come from very wealthy families. They should pay tuition, but it should not be charged to families that don't have the means. Textbooks should be open access. I know you've worked hard to try to get the price of textbooks reduced. I think they should be open access and students should get them through the library as ebooks. In terms of the public-private partnerships, from the professor's point of view, they lose their intellectual property rights. I've had colleagues leave because they've invented things in the medical field and they wouldn't get any credit for it. So it's problematic, not just the corporations get the royalties, but the universities get them. And the faculty who are the ones who are creative, they lose any kind of success from financially from that. When people, my colleagues get grants, they have to pay sometimes as much as 60 to 80% overhead, which creates a disincentive even to get grants. If you know the university is going to claim that they need more than half of it for quote overhead, unquote. So the two other things about the commercialization of education, you go to the bookstore, books used to be on the main floor. Now you walk in and you can buy sweatshirts and other various kinds of products, but the books are in the basement. So the bookstore isn't a bookstore anymore. So that's one manifestation of the commercialization of universities. Another thing is that teaching evaluations are no longer done on, you know, with pen and paper, they're done online. And so it's done by a company. And, and so the teaching evaluations, which as Professor Nader has pointed out, were developed supposedly to democratize universities, but have been mainly used by administrators to punish faculty anyway. So they're sent to all the students, whether they've come to class or not. So we get evaluated, we get sent these evaluations by these companies, you know, it's all outsourced. So I think that's another sign. I mean, I think it's fine for people to be critical of faculty if we can improve our teaching, but they ought to be written by students who've actually been to class. So normally you give them out in class and then people fill them out. So the fact that we have Blackboard, where we have to post our syllabi and our exams and our intellectual property is owned by a company. I mean, they're just endless examples of exactly what you said, which is the problematic nature of the commercialization of universities. We really ought to look at how universities function in other countries because not having the tuition that is so overwhelming for some people that they can't choose careers in public interest, it's really very sad. I do want to note what you said at class day, though, when I graduated from college, which is that even if you have to go into the corporate world, you can devote one day a week 
to doing public interest. You told us that we should still, even if we have to take a corporate job, we need to do some good in the world. I'll never forget that. We've been speaking with Allison Dundee's Rentown, a co-editor with Juan Detez of the new book, The Ethical University Transforming Higher Education. Thank you very much, Allison. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to speak to you as you're one of the great leaders of our country. Thank you. We've been speaking with Allison Dundee's Rentown. We will link to The Ethical University at RalphNaderRadioHour.com. I want to thank our guests again, James Henry and Allison Dundee's Rentown. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show for you podcast listeners. Stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up, which features a lot more from our interviews and also our new segment, In Case You Haven't Heard, with Francesco DeSantis. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, it's free. Go to Nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to CorporateCrimereporter.com. The American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to TortMuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. We have a new issue of the Capitol Hill Citizen out now. To order your copy of the Capitol Hill Citizen, Democracy Dies in Broad Daylight, go to CapitolHillCitizen.com. And remember to continue the conversation after each show. Go to the comments section at RalphNaderRadioHour.com and post a comment or question on this week's episode. We'll pick up some standout comments. Be sure to tune in next week. You may hear Ralph's response. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. Be active. Focus on Congress. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, producer of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and welcome to the wrap-up. Let's continue our conversation with James Henry about the banking crisis. Let's go to the curiosity level of Steve and David and Hannah, who are not known to be experts on the Federal Reserve, but are known to reflect a wide latitude and longitude of popular curiosity. Steve? Thanks, Ralph. Listening to this, it seems like no bank is too big to fail. I mean, even the mid-sized banks are too big to fail. And even Barney Frank, who is the co-author of the Dodd-Frank bill after the 2008 crisis, went on the board of Signature Bank, one of the banks that failed, and has been defending the loosening, the Trump era loosening of the bank regulations. Is no bank allowed to fail without being a contagion throughout the system, without having to be bailed out? Well, I think in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, you could make an argument that there were so many U.S. tech companies, and especially startups that had their capital raises, their life savings kind of tied up in that bank, that it was an unusual situation. It should have been spotted beforehand, and it should have been, you know, it was outrageous. You know, so there's some very prosaic rules that come out of this, which is that hedge, (laughs) diversify deposits, have inspectors. I mean, these are not complicated things. You know, if you're going to raise interest rates, You know, you need to realize that regulation is your friend. You need to prevent bank failures. 
I mean, these are just obvious. And I'm astonished at the level of, of stupidity on the part of the people who are in charge here. But, you know, Barney Frank, I think, looks like an idiot in retrospect. He was involved in a bank that was taking crypto. They had more than $15 billion or 25% of their deposits in the form of crypto from people they didn't identify. And they couldn't even file a year-end statement for 2022. You know, so the New York Examiner said it had enough and it was closing them down. They were banking. They were providing U.S. clearing services to a Chinese-owned crypto exchange. These are some of the most, <laughs> many of the people involved in the Signature Bank were, you know, are also close to Donald Trump, but that's neither here nor there. But, I mean, look, there's... Okay. By the way, you want to simplify what is going to happen, 100% prediction. If a bank has 98% of its deposits by rich people above the $250,000 FDIC guarantee cap, that means the minute there is any fear or rumor that this bank's in trouble... Then you get a cascading dominoes effect where all these rich people say, hey, I'm getting out of here because I got all these uninsured deposits. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So any examiner for the California State Regulatory Agency who went to work at nine o'clock in the morning would know that 98 percent of the deposits in Silicon Valley Bank are flight hazards. They are insecure flight hazards for any rumor or any other shakiness of this bank. And obviously, these examiners knew it. And I think the congressional investigation is going to have to focus very much on who did they report to upstairs that basically said, shut up, we're not going to talk about this. That goes to Sacramento, as well as Washington, D.C. David? Thank you. I really appreciate an opportunity to ask this question. And if you could tell me why I'm wrong, because I have absolute moral certitude in my own heart on this. So please explain to me why I'm wrong about nationalizing the banks and compromise. It seems to me that you can't compromise. There are two sides to this. And, and our side has compromised before we even start reigning in the banks. I think Henry Kissinger wrote his doctoral thesis on how Europe never imagined that Napoleon and Hitler wanted it all. And the banks want it all. They're getting it all. And why am I wrong? I'm sure you're going to disagree with me. You talked about nationalizing the banks, but you said you don't want the government running the banks. Are you talking permanent nationalization or temporary restructuring and selling them off? I'm talking about a public option you've brought up. You've taught us about postal banking. But I'm talking politics, Ralph, and this question is also addressed to you. It feels like there's no counter argument to these banks, that we start compromising with them before we even start. Don't you think the time has come for Democrats, people like our guest, perhaps, maybe I'm wrong, to demand, to demand the banks get nationalized unless our side says we want it all? The banks will never compromise. We need people with full-throated calls for nationalizing the banks to scare them into submission. Why, why am I wrong from a politically... Well, before Jim answers, let's get clarification of your question. You're talking about all banks. You're talking about credit unions, community banks, as well as the giant banks or just the giant banks. I am talking about a threat a wave of voices, 
professors and Democratic politicians threatening you've qualified it, so, but a cudgel of nationalization that is uncompromising unless we have that. Jim? Yeah, I okay, think you uh, made your point, Jim. No, I got it. I think the way to do this is to have nationalization be a credible threat by actually doing it once or twice in a financial crisis. You'll have to nationalize the entire system. But in extremis, rather than throw bailout money, and certainly rather than bail out these whale depositors to the tune of you know tens of billions of dollars, I mean, $175 billion of basically uninsured deposits at Silicon Valley that the Fed has agreed to kind of at least subsidize, you know, that's outrageous. So first of all, instead of nationalizing those deposits, you're going to be just refusing to, to compensate those folks. But in the case of some of these institutions that are just basically too big to let go, I think it would be a, a constructive example for us to actually try the experiment of what the Brits have done under the conservative government of nationalizing Nat West, you know, and it's turned out to be reasonably okay. If they know it can happen in the United States to them, they might clean up their act. So not as a strategy of saying we have a grand scheme for nationalizing all the banks in the country, because that's not going to be politically acceptable, I don't think. I proposed something like that in the crisis in 2009 in the Nation magazine. I wrote a number of articles about it. It got some attention, but nobody was you know, signing up for that. Tim Geither was the Treasury Secretary. Obama went ahead and bailed out the banks. So we need a constructive example where public enterprise can be made to work. It doesn't have to be a federally owned bank. It can be you know, owned by many other kinds of communities, but it's not a bad idea to have it happen occasionally. Right. One of the refrains, I'm sorry to interrupt, and this is my, yeah. I know we're out of time. One of the refrains about not nationalizing the banks is the government shouldn't be running the banks. It's not the business of the guy. But the government is running the banks. The Federal Reserve yeah. is running the banks. Yeah, no, it's, that's, that's a, a red herring. I mean, in fact, de facto, they're doing a damn poor job of it, as we've seen again and again. The banking system is heavily influenced by the regulators who are basically, you know, being to a large extent, I think, manipulated by the bankers. Listeners should know that there is no congressional audit of the Federal Reserve. The great congressman from Texas years ago, Wright Patman, kept pushing for it and pushing for it when he was chair of the House Banking Committee. And number two, the Federal Reserve budget comes from the banks. It doesn't come from appropriations from Congress. It comes from the bank fees. So that's one reason why the regional Federal Reserve banks have so many bankers on the board around the country. So it's basically a tool of the banking industry from the get-go. Hannah? Thank you. Why are we so preoccupied with finding solutions that, quote unquote, save jobs? We seem to be willing to spend trillions of dollars and turn ourselves into knots to protect banking jobs or save tech companies so that we don't lose tech jobs. Why don't we just spend that money on more robust unemployment benefits or universal basic income as the resident millennial? I imagine I share this sentiment with a lot of people from my generation. Why are we so attached to these solutions that don't really seem to help people, but we say, well, we don't want to lose all those jobs? It just seems patently ridiculous. 
Well, let me take a crack at that. I, you know, used to be a millennial <laughs> back in the day. I guess there was a, you know, as someone who's worked in the VC industry, the venture capital industry, and been a one of those uh, software engineers out there in Silicon Valley, I can say that it's it's no fun to be part of a ten person startup where you're working, you know, seven by twenty four, and you find that your two million dollar raise was parked in this bank has just disappeared, and you have no job and no future. Uh, and the company you've worked to start for five years has just gone down the tubes. So there were literally thousands of those kinds of companies in this one bank. The fact that the feds allowed this to happen, that the fact that these bank managers allowed it to happen is outrageous. But that's a strategic part of the U.S. economy. It's, it's very important that we not lose the core of our innovation industry. And I just think that it was justified in this situation to help, you know, a lot of those small companies. So should they have been more discriminating and not paying back the giant depositors? Absolutely. But in general, uh, you know, your your question is a good one. Yeah. If I just, if I may, the reason I, I mentioned as a millennial, you know, my generation, our adulthood started at the turn of the Great Recession. And you know, the job market was trash when we were in college. It was trash when we came out of college and people struggled to, and continue to struggle to kind of establish themselves with a lot of the markers of a stable adulthood that boomers and Gen X had before them. So that's why I framed my question that way. I think it's preserving these abstract jobs seems to be more of a priority than looking after the actual people who theoretically would have those jobs. And now more with Allison Dundee's Rintelm. I just want to give the listeners an idea of the, of the range of this book by going through the titles of some of the chapters. You have a title called Scandals and Historic Injustice at Universities, An Argument for Greater Accountability. Another chapter, Ethical Foundations for Institutional Integrity, with specific examples. Third is Privacy Play in the Digitalization of the University. Another one is shared governance in higher education. Another is academic libraries advocating for an ethical university. Another is the use of adjuncts in U.S. colleges and universities, which we were just talking about. Rights-based approaches to the treatment of student-athletes. That's a hot subject. Campus policing. What authority and limits are appropriate? The role of the humanities in trauma-informed pedagogy. Pedagogical issues, the general education challenge. Is your grading scale unfair? Do aging academics have a moral obligation to retire? Human rights of international students in higher education theory and practice. Secrecy and the university, a cautionary case study. And an an appendix called shared governance policies. By the way, the one that says, do aging academics have a moral obligation to retire? The subtext is, in order to open up opportunities for younger professors to develop their careers in a limited capacity department. Earlier, I said I thought the book was an understatement because our interface with universities, especially scientists and engineers over the years, has brought us to the conclusion that there's a massive self-censorship, if not a conflict of interest, between the scientists and engineers, often moonlighting jobs for corporations and the corporate world. I'll just give an example. This still astonishes me. My niece, Rania Milleron, is a co-author of a book called Ethics, Policies, and Whistleblowing in Engineering. It's one of a kind. 
ethics, politics, and whistleblowing and engineering, full of examples, full of ways where engineering students can get a larger frame of reference, get a sense of their professional obligations, their whistleblowing rights. They're going to be in a lot of tight decisional experiences when they go to work for companies that behaved like the opiate corporations, the Boeing Corporation, the oil companies, spilling corporations. They're going to be in ethical quandaries of astonishing pain and anguish if they're not ready and they don't have a public philosophy about their own profession, which is not a trade, it's a profession which should be freer to speak up and engage in prevention of problems, as well as the legal rights that they now have in many federal and state statutes to whistleblow. At any rate, I sent a letter to 21 engineering deans and engineering professors all over the country, and I said to them, this is a very important book for your classes, even though you're curriculum is always deemed full. You have to expose your students to the issues in this book, which a lot of concrete issues of engineers who blew the whistle on the auto industry, nuclear industry, and many other aspects to engineering responsibility. And I didn't get a single response. So we sent another communication stream. I didn't get a single response. We sent another. I didn't get a single response. This book was praised by a leading public policy professor at MIT who thought that it was very, very adaptable. Nick Ashford, who's written many a book himself. This is not a sliver example. In the struggle for auto safety, you could count the number of engineering professors who spoke up, even though thousands of them knew about the industry suppressing such simple life-saving devices as, as seatbelts and padded dash panels. So I'm very concerned about the rupture between university knowledge and public policy and alerting the general public whose taxes pay for a lot of these public universities. Would you share some thoughts on that, Allison? Well, yes, I think it's it's really important, the subject that we're in an era now where we're all complicit in the wrongdoing of our universities or other institutions to which we belong. And so, you know, everybody says, don't be a bystander. We're all complicit. And I think we're beginning to realize that universities have been violating people's human rights. You know, when I talked to you earlier about Dr. Tyndall and how for decades he was molesting thousands of women and that the university has had to pay over $1 billion in just one class action that was brought with respect to that. And the woman who finally went to the rape crisis center, the nurse, when she reported that she was fired. So what people see is that whistleblowers are punished and so on. On the question of research ethics for engineers, I, for a few years, was on a committee at USC. I'm just giving drawing on my own experience here. It was on international research. And most of the issues that came before us were questions of whether there could be exemptions from the rules that usually would require students be treated equally, that international students could not work on certain projects if they were from China and certain other countries because of national security threats. And I thought that that was a violation of commitments of the university. And it's my understanding that some universities don't accept funding from the Defense Department and branches of the U.S. government precisely because of the ethical implications of doing that kind of research and also the fact that they have to exclude students of particular nationalities. 
So I got off the committee because I kept asking if we could revisit that and have a more ethical university at USC like other places. So I think that's why I teach general education courses. It's because I, it's a chance to teach students across the university, not just in political science. And so a lot of people like to teach specialized upper division courses, and they don't want to teach these big GE courses, two or 300 students, because it's a lot more work for professors. But I like that because that's a chance to reach students in engineering and in all the different fields to talk about these kinds of questions. When your sister, Professor Lauren Ader, teaches her courses that had hundreds and hundreds of students controlling processes and her other fantastic courses, she was able to influence students from all different disciplines. And so I think academics who care about building an ethical university may have to be willing to teach these big intro courses, because that's where we have a chance to raise students' consciousness and make them realize that they're being indoctrinated by universities, that they should speak out. And I think we need to start with, with students who are quite young. So I like teaching freshmen. Well, years ago, we tried to facilitate the organization of a group of university college professors as in a public interest group, in addition to their duties at the university and colleges, that they would testify, they would raise issues as a collective effort, they would try to recruit students to intern in civic groups. It was like the proverbial trying to herd cats. We got a few dozen, but we never reached our objective of having a minimum of a thousand dues-paying professors to form this nonprofit groups. Speaking of elite public schools, a couple weeks ago, we had on two UC Berkeley grad students, Sandra Oseguera and Jesus Gutierrez, and they came to talk to us about the university's plan to close, among other libraries, the Anthropology Library. And I had a question, but we just got an update from them on their efforts to save the Anthropology Library. I would be interested in your response to it. So they updated us. Yesterday, a core group of us met with Chancellor Carol Christ and other administrative figures, where we presented our arguments about accessibility, equity, community, and scholarship. The response of the administration was a complete disregard for the things that the UC system stands for. And ultimately, they let us know that they are going to move ahead and close the library. We're far from giving up. However, we do need more media support. In an attempt to get us started, we'd like to know if you all had any recommendations of outlets that would be interested in picking up our story. We're discovering that, ultimately, Berkeley is a brand, and when the brand is hurt, we'll start getting responses. So I'd be interested in if you have any thoughts on strategies that might bear fruit for them. And I will say, as a UC Berkeley anthropology graduate myself, I was really intrigued by their reference to the Berkeley brand. And that seems like a very powerful angle. Well, I think naming and shaming, I think universities don't like negative publicity, whether it's about libraries or anything else. But I think it's heartbreaking that these specialized libraries are being closed. Great universities do not close libraries. An ethical university does not close a library. The Anthropology Library Berkeley is one of the three great ones. I believe Harvard and Penn are the others. So this is a very short-sighted and distressing decision. I wrote to Chancellor Crisp because my father taught in the anthropology department for 42 years. And when he received a check for a million dollars, he gave it to the university to set up a chair. 
So our family has continued to support the university. And I wrote and I said, I got a letter from the Dean of Social Science asking me to contribute money to Berkeley. And I wrote and I said, I didn't think that I wrote to Chancellor Christ and to the Dean and said, I didn't think families would want to contribute to the university if they're basically taking steps that will undermine this great university, the most important public university. So I think more publicity is important. I also think discussing possible litigation because there was money given, I believe, to support the library by the Foster family. So I usually don't favor being more litigious. You know, I'd rather work within the system. But, you know, if there's no response to protest and media coverage and polite requests, perhaps a more aggressive approach will be necessary. I don't know if they're grounds. I don't know if they're standing and so on. But I've been trying to reach Dean Erwin Chemerinsky, who is my colleague and my professor from USC. And I also contacted Ann Harrison, who was a high school debate friend, who's the dean of the business school. So I've been trying to contact the deans in other parts of the university to build support, to challenge Chris. I also think, again, the Board of Regents wields power. I don't have contacts with them, but I would certainly hope that they would ask, demand to have a meeting with the Board of Regents. The Regents held a hearing last week. They gave witnesses one minute and they were cut off. I was called because I'd asked to speak. I was called five seconds before I was on. They didn't tell me when I was going to be on, and they cut me off after 60 seconds. So they're going through a pro forma routine because former Governor Jerry Brown called up some of the regents and told them that they better pay attention to this. This is a totally narrow economic decision, $400,000 saving, even that's inflated. And they're totally disregarding the educational value of an on-site specialized library where students gather. Where the public comes in, anybody from the public come in and use that library because it's a public university. And still, they're bullheading forward, and they're going to pay a big price in terms of the reputation of the university. That doesn't seem to concern them yet. I did have a question about what type of coalition could be built, you know, getting donors together to say, we're, you know, we're taking away our money because you're not doing what universities are supposed to do. Or Berkeley City, what about Berkeley High, parents associations as a community resource? Is there a coalition that could be built with parents? You know, PTAs can get really insistent on issues they care about. Well, I think, you know, in this case, you know, it would be the advancement office, you know, fundraising people at Berkeley or the alumni office. But the university, since they're paid by the university, they're not going to help. Susie Cohen, who's a family friend, is the director of the Alumni Association. And I did CC her on my letter, but she could lose her job if she sends something out to all the alumni. But the Berkeley High, thats an, I think it would have to be the some kind of alumni. There are alumni groups associated with the University of California that are in different parts of the state, you know, there are different different parts of the world. So it would be going to, I think would be going through the alumni of anthropology, but I don't know how you would get the lists of the people who are alumni, but I don't, to me, Berkeley High and the PTA is not quite the right group unless some very high percentage of Berkeley High students go to Cal. I don't know, but I do agree with the idea of trying to get more people. Right? I've written to everybody I know who was at Berkeley, who now teaches anthropology, you know, Orrin Starr and Sarah Lamb, people even who are important anthropologists at other universities. I figured the more letters, I learned about letter writing when I was a kid and I read letters written to Ralph Nader in a project for Professor Nader. So I did try to get more people to write letters, but I don't know what else you would would have me do. Just let me know. I'm not going to sleep in the library over students. 
here's something you can do. The chair of the budget committee for the legislature is a UCAL grad, and she's supposed to be very progressive, but she's not taking a position. And she could change it all by herself because she's in charge of the budget committee, which includes the UCAL budget. Her name is Nancy Skinner. Supposed to be very progressive and in the key position of all the lawmakers in Sacramento. One word from her and they would back down. Send me her contact information. I'd be happy to do something about that. I mean, writing a book is one thing. Trying to actually get something changed is another. You know, I really wish I could still be a Nader's Raider. They're trying to save one $400,000, Allison, which is one-tenth of the budget of the football coach. He gets most of it, $4 million. Look, the only other time that the faculty ever came together at USC, in the time I've been there, 36 years, besides getting President Nikias to step down, was when they tried to close our social science library. And people were so infuriated that all the narcissistic faculty came together and we lobbied. And at that time, Kevin Starr, who'd been the state librarian, was the associate dean of the library. And we got Nikias to back down and we still have our social science library. So when I wrote to Chris, I said, look, if USC can listen to the protests of faculty, students and alumni, surely Berkeley ought to be able to do that. But even that didn't seem to have persuaded her. And she was former president of Smith, the classic liberal arts college. And she's a friend of my mother's. I mean, I thought I tried to use the family connection, too, because she knew both my parents. And, you know, I tried to see if she would talk to me. And she just wrote me saying she wrote me. No, supposedly she wrote it. I don't know if someone else actually wrote it. But in any case, she did take the time to write me back and say she knew it wasn't the answer I wanted to hear. But she hoped I appreciated understanding her reasoning. It's almost like there's a fix in here that they don't want to lose one battle because they think that they may lose a bigger battle of their corporatized mindset in the future. It's really almost irrational, closing down a library. It's that one librarian, one staff, and a half-time janitor. One of the students is actually, he stays there from one to five every afternoon to handle any requests. He's volunteering to keep the library open. We can't get the New York Times to move. David Streitland of the New York Times needs a call from you, Allison. He's in San Francisco. He has all the material. He just needs a tip of the scales. But the point is people ought to be able to admit they made a mistake. I mean, Nikias, they were going to turn our library into practice rooms and we were going to have tubas and trombones down below our offices. We wanted our library. We sure as heck didn't want music rooms below us. But the fact is that they were willing to reconsider and move the practice room somewhere else. I think that's really a bad sign if administrators can't say, look, I'm going to reconsider. You're right. We shouldn't do that. That's really pretty insidious if they can't. As you say, in an instance like this where, you know, what's at stake is why can't they just say, "Okay, all right, we'll save money somewhere else. Moving the books away is a form of book banning and censorship, regardless of their intent. You move books away from access. It's a form of book banning and censorship. It's also dishonoring the people there. It's, you know, they put up the photos of the people who used to teach there and they have other exhibits. It's been there for, for I don't know, for, has it been there for 100 years? I mean, it's bad enough they've changed the names of everything there. You know, the Lowy Museum because of the money from a donor. It's now the Hearst you know, Museum. And I think they closed the museum and now Kroger is no good anymore. I mean, the whole place is, it seems like they're going to get rid of anthropology. I think the anthropology, American Anthropological Association wrote a letter also to to challenge this. So it's just a bad sign for humanistic social science and the humanities. The universities, they merge all these language departments, they close libraries. 
it's going to turn the university into a business school and a vocational school. It's really, it's a sign of what we've been talking about during this, this conversation. And again, I want to thank you very much for making time to talk to me about my trauma and why I wrote this book. And I hope the book is useful to other people and encourages them to challenge practices at their own universities. One last point. Why don't you try to get the Anthropology Association in Washington to weigh in here? That would be very good. I thought they already had, but I can I can follow up with Ed Lebo. I will. Oh. They've asked me to run for the ethics position in the governing board for that. And now it's time for In Case You Haven't Heard with Francesco DeSantis. For the first time ever, new Gallup poll shows that Democrats sympathize more with Palestinians than Israelis by a margin of 48% to 39%. This represents an 11-point shift in attitudes since just last year. Republicans still sympathize far more with Israelis by a margin of 78 to 11%. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, or PETA, sent a letter to the Pentagon last week urging them to cease testing pulse radiation on animals in connection with the Havana Syndrome hoax. In 2020, PETA criticized the Army for reversing a previous ban on weapons testing on dogs, cats, marine animals, and non-human primates, and last year accused the Army of hiding such weapons tests after the service rejected a Freedom of Information Act request for documents relating to the experiments, Politico reports. The Texas Education Agency has announced a takeover of the Houston School District. The elected school board will be replaced by state-appointed managers who will wield tremendous power. Houston Public Media reports that, quote, they can control the budget, school closures, collaborations with charter networks, policies around curriculum and library books, as well as hiring or firing the superintendent. At a recent town hall, Rep. Pramila Jayapal was asked by an activist from Seattle for Assange whether she thought it was time to free Mr. Assange. She responded with a simple yes and invited the activist to continue the conversation. Rep. Jayapal chairs the Congressional Progressive Caucus. A wild story in creative loafing Tampa covers, quote, how a Florida city targets unwanted residents using police and code enforcement. The story follows a Jewish woman who moved from Florida to New York. Quote, last March, the cops broke into her home when she wasn't there to inspect alleged code violations using an illegal search warrant. Body camera video revealed them making jokes about Anne Frank. Her home security camera system showed the police going through her personal belongings and code enforcement personnel looking through her garbage. She faced criminal charges for the alleged violations, an uncommon practice in the state. Common Dreams reports that last week, Rep. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez met with Okinawa Governor Denny Tamaki, who lobbied her and other U.S. officials to oppose construction of a new U.S. base in Okinawa. He also urged the U.S. to ease tensions with China. Okinawa hosts over 70% of U.S. military presence in Japan. Tamaki stressed that toxic PFA's contamination of soil and water from the bases are worsening and require immediate studies by the U.S. government. Quote-unquote. She told the Okinawa Times that her office will review the contents of the meeting and consider what action is necessary. Governor Tamaki also met with Senator Todd Young of Indiana and Rep. Jill Tokuda of Hawaii, as well as aides of House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Senator Ed Markey, and the Senate Armed Services Committee. Following the abysmal performance of New York Democrats in the 2022 midterms and their obstinate refusal to implement any reforms, 
Slate reports that National Democrats are quietly forming a, quote, shadow party apparatus in the state. The House Majority PAC has already committed $45 million to New York races in 2024. Further, the PAC is building out, quote, an entire electoral operation, hiring its own staffers to handle opposition research, rapid response messaging, and more. Typically, these functions are handled by the state party. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Until next time. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Thieves in the temple.